Section 17 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary II, Chapter 1, Part 2. When the Lady Mary attained her fifteenth year, projects for her marriage began to agitate the thoughts of her father and the counsels of her uncle. The Duke of York hoped to give her to the Dauphin, son of his friend and kinsman, Louis the Fourteenth. Charles the Second and the people of England destined her hand to her first cousin, William Henry, Prince of Orange, son of the late stockholder, William the Second, and Mary, eldest daughter of Charles the First. The disastrous circumstances which rendered this prince fatherless before he was born have been mentioned in the life of his grandmother, Queen Henrietta Maria. William of Orange, afterwards William III, elected King of Great Britain, came prematurely into this world in the first hours of his mother's excessive anguish for the loss of her husband. She was surrounded by the deepest symbols of woe, for the room in which William was born was hung with black. The cradle that was to receive him was black, even to the rockers. At the moment of his birth, the candles were suddenly extinguished, and the room was left in the most profound darkness. Such was the description of one Mrs. Tanner, the Princess of Orange's sage femme, or midwife, who added the following marvelous tale, that she plainly saw three circles of light over the newborn prince's head, which she supposed meant the three crowns which he afterwards attained. No jealousy was felt on account of this prediction by his uncles, the expatriated heirs of Great Britain. James, Duke of York, mentions in his memoirs the posthumous birth of his nephew as a consolation for the grief he felt for the loss of the child's father. The infant William of Orange was consigned to the care of Catherine, Lady Stanhope, who had accompanied Queen Henrietta Maria to Holland in the capacity of governess to the Princess Royal, his mother. It was in Lady Stanhope's apartments, in the palace in the wood at The Hague, that young William was reared and nursed during his sickly childhood till he was ten years old. In afterlife, he spoke of her as his earliest friend. Her son, Philip, Earl of Chesterfield, was his playfellow. More than one dangerous accident befell the Orange Prince in his infancy. You will hear, wrote his mother's aunt, the Queen of Bohemia. What great peril my little nephew escaped yesterday on the bridge at the Princess of Orange's house. But God be thanked, there was no hurt, only the coach broken. I took him into my coach and brought him home. At the following Christmas, the Queen of Bohemia wrote again, January 10th, 1654. Yesterday was the naming of Prince William's child. I was invited to the supper, and my niece, the Princess of Orange. The little Prince of Orange, her son, and Prince Maurice were the gossips. The States General, I mean their deputies, the Council of State, and myself and Louise were the guests. My little nephew, the Prince of Orange, was at the supper, and sat very still all the time. Those States that were there were very much taken with him." Such praiseworthy Dutch gravity in a baby of two years old was, it seems, very attractive to their high mightinesses, the state's deputies. These affectionate mynheers were of the minority in the Senate belonging to the Orange Party. 
Notwithstanding the occasional visits of the deputies of the Dutch states, the prospects of the infant William were not very brilliant in his native land, for the Republican party abolished the office of stadtholder while he was yet rocked in his sable cradle. It is true that the stadtholdership was elective, but it had been held from father to son since William I had broken the cruel yoke of Spain from the necks of the Hollanders. The infant representative of this hero was, therefore, reduced to the patrimony derived from the Dutch magnate of Nassau, who had married a former princess of Orange, expatriated from her beautiful patrimony in the south of France. A powerful party in Holland still looked with deep interest on the last scion of their great deliverer, William, but they were, like his family, forced to remain oppressed and silent under the government of the Republican de Witt, while England was under the sway of his ally, Cromwell. The young Prince of Orange had no guardian or protector but his mother, Mary of England, and his grandmother, the widow of Henry Frederick, Prince of Orange, who resided in the Old Court, or Dower Palace, about two miles from the ancient state palace of The Hague. When William of Orange was a boy of eight or nine years old, he still inhabited his mother's palace of the wood at The Hague, and without any very settled discipline of instruction, he passed his days in her salons with his governess, Lady Stanhope, or playing with the maids of honor in the antechamber. A droll scene in which he participated is related by Elizabeth Charlotte, Princess Palatine, afterwards Duchess of Orleans. The Queen of Bohemia, her grandmother, with whom she was staying at The Hague, summoned her one day to pay a state visit to the Princess of Orange and her son. The Princess Sophia, who lived then with the Queen of Bohemia, her mother. Not in the most prosperous circumstances, as she had made a love match with a younger brother of the House of Hanover. Took upon herself to prepare her little niece for her presentation to the Princess of Orange by saying, Lizette! that is Elizabeth. Take care that you are not as giddy as usual. Follow the queen, your grandmother, step by step, and at her departure, do not let her have to wait for you. This exhortation was not needless, for by her own account, a more uncouth little savage than the high and mighty princess, Elizabeth Charlotte, was never seen in a courtly drawing room. She replied, Oh, aunt, I mean to conduct myself very sagely. The Princess of Orange was quite unknown to her, but she was on the most familiar terms with the young prince, William of Orange, with whom she had often played at the house of the Queen of Bohemia. Before this pair of little cousins adjourned to renew their usual gambles, the young Princess Elizabeth Charlotte did nothing but stare in the face of the Princess of Orange, and as she could obtain no answer to her repeated questions of, Who is that woman? She at last pointed to her, and bawled to the young Prince of Orange, Tell me, pray, who is that woman with the furious long nose? William burst out laughing, with impish glee, and replied, That is my mother, the Princess Royal. Anne Hyde, one of the ladies of the Princess, seeing the unfortunate little guest, looked greatly alarmed at the blunder she had committed, very good-naturedly came forward, and led her and the young Prince of Orange into the bedchamber of his mother. Here a most notable game of romps commenced between William and his cousin, who, before she began to play, entreated her kind conductress, Mistress Anne Hyde, to call her in time, when the queen, her grandmother, was about to depart. We played all sorts of games, continues Elizabeth Charlotte. 
and the time flew very fast. William of Orange and I were rolling ourselves up in a turkey carpet when I was summoned. Without losing an instant, I jumped up and rushed into the salon. The Queen of Bohemia was already in the antechamber. I had no time to lose. I twitched the Princess Royal very hard by the robe to draw her attention, then sprang before her, and, having made her a very odd curtsy, I darted after the queen, my grandmother, whom I followed step by step to her coach, leaving everyone in the presence chamber in a roar of laughter. I knew not wherefore. The death of the Princess of Orange with the smallpox in England has already been mentioned. Her young son was left an orphan at nine years of age, with no better protector than his grandmother, the dowager of Henry Frederick. The hopes of the young prince were dark, and distant of anything like restoration to rank among the sovereign princes of Europe, all rested on the goodwill and affection of his uncles in England. On her deathbed, the Princess of Orange solemnly left her orphan son to the guardianship of her brother, King Charles. Several letters exist in the state paper office, written in a round boyish hand, from William, confirming this choice, and entreating the fatherly protection of his royal uncles. There are likewise two from his grandmother on the same subject, and of condolence for the loss of his mother, Mary, Princess Royal, her daughter-in-law. The Princess Dowager has been praised for the education she gave her grandson, but it had not the least tendency to liberality or learning. He was in his youth economical, being nearly destitute of money, and he was abstinent from all expensive indulgences. He wrote an extraordinary hand of the Italian class of enormously large dimensions. His French letters, though brief, are worded with an elegance and courtesy, which form a contrast to the rudeness and dryness of his manners. He was a daily sufferer from ill health, having from his infancy struggled with a cruel asthma, yet all his thoughts are set on war, and all his exercises tended to it. Notwithstanding his diminutive and weak form, which was not free from deformity, he rode well and looked better on horseback than in any other position. He was a linguist by nature, not by study, and spoke several languages intelligibly. His earnest desire to regain his rank prompted him to center all his studies in the art of war, because it was the office of the stockholder to lead the army of Holland. The Prince of Orange spent the winter of 1670 in a friendly visit at the court of England, where he was received by his uncles with the utmost kindness, and it is said that they, then and there, concerted with him some plans, which led to his subsequent restoration to the stockholdership of Holland. William was 19, small and weak, and rather deformed. He seldom indulged in wine, but drank ale, or perhaps some schnapps of his native Holland's gin, he frequently went to bed at 10 o'clock. Such a course of life was viewed invidiously by the riotous courtiers of Charles II, and they wickedly conspired to entice the phlegmatic prince into drinking a quantity of champagne, which flew to his head and made him more mad and mischievous than even Buckingham himself, who was at the head of the joke. Nothing could restrain the Prince of Orange from sallying out and breaking the windows of the apartments of the maids of honor, and he would have committed farther outrages if his wicked tempters had not seized him by the wrists and ankles and carried him struggling and raging to his apartments. They exulted much in this outbreak of a quiet and well-behaved prince, but the triumph, 
was a sorry one at the best. Sir John Raresby, who relates the anecdote, declares that such an exertion of spirit was likely to recommend the prince to the Lady Mary. It was certainly more likely to frighten a child of her age into fits. At that time, he was considered as the future spouse of his young cousin. The prince left England in February 1670. The Princess Elizabeth Charlotte declares in her memoirs that she should not have objected to marry her cousin, William of Orange. Probably he was not so lovingly disposed towards his eccentric playfellow, for, notwithstanding his own want of personal comeliness, this warlike modicum of humanity was vastly particular regarding the beauty, meekness, piety, and stately height of the lady to whom he aspired. None of these particulars were very preeminent in his early playfellow, who had instead wit at will, and the species of merry mischief called esplegari, sufficient to have governed him and all his heavy Dutchmen to boot. She had, however, a different destiny, as the mother of the second royal line of France, and William was left to fulfill the intention of his mother's family by reserving his hand for a daughter of England. Previously to this event, the massacre of the De Witts occurred. The pretense for this outrage was that de Ruart of Putin, the elder brother, the pensionary or chief civil magistrate of the Republic, had hired an apothecary to poison the Prince of Orange. The mob, infuriated by this delusion, tore the two unfortunate brothers to pieces, with circumstances of horror not to be penned here. Such was the leading event that ushered the Prince of Orange into political life. Whether William was guilty of conspiring the death of these, his opponents, remains a mystery, but his enemies certainly invented a term of reproach derived from their murder, for whensoever he obtained the ends of his ambition by the outcry of a mob, it was said that the Prince of Orange had dewitted his enemies. Be that as it may, the dewitts, the sturdy upholders of the original constitution of their country, were massacred by means of the faction cry of his name, if not by his contrivance. Their deaths inspired the awe of personal fear in many, both in Holland and England, who did not altogether approve of the principles by which the hero of Nassau obtained his ends. Europe had been long divided with the violent contest for superiority between the French and Spanish monarchies. Since the days of the mighty extension of empire and wealth by Charles V, the kings of France had rather unequally struggled against the powers of Spain, leagued with the empire of Germany. The real points of difference between Louis XIV and the Prince of Orange were wholly personal ones and had nothing to do with either liberty or religion. William, who was excessively proud of his Provencal ancestry, was haunted with an idea more worthy of a poet than a Dutchman. Being the restoration of his titular principality, the dominions from whence he derived his title, the Golden Aurasia of the south of France, seated on the Rhone. William demanded the restitution of the city of Orange from Louis XIV, after it had been resigned by his ancestors for two centuries, and the title of Orange had been transplanted by the marriage of its heiress among the fogs and frogs of the Low Countries. As William of Orange retained the title and was the grandson of Queen Henrietta Maria, and as such, one of his nearest male relatives, Louis XIV had no objection to receive him as a vassal peer of France, and as a son withal, 
if he would have accepted the hand of his eldest illegitimate child, the fair daughter of the beautiful La Valere, who afterwards married the fourth prince of the blood royal, Conti. William refused the young lady and the whole proposition very rudely, and it is difficult to decide which of these two kinsmen cherished the more deadly rage of vengeful hatred against each other for the remainder of their lives. The first hint from an official person relative to the wedlock of Mary and William occurs in a letter from Sir William Temple to him. The Duke of York, your uncle, wrote this ambassador, bade me assure your highness that he looked on your interest as his own, and if there was anything wherein you might use his services, you might be sure of it. I replied, Pray, sir, remember there is nothing you accept, and you do not know how far a young prince's desires may go. I will tell him what you say, and if there be occasion, be a witness of it. The Duke of York smiled and said, Well, well, you may, for all that, tell him what I bid you. Upon which I said, At least I will tell the Prince of Orange that you smiled at my question, which is, I am sure, a great deal better than if you frowned. I know, adds Sir William to the Prince of Orange, that your highness will easily pardon me for entertaining you with these circumstances, but I will say no more of the kind unless you give me encouragement. No impartial person, conversant with the state papers of the era, can doubt for a moment that the restoration of their nephew to his rights as stadtholder was a point which Charles II and his brother never forgot, while they were contesting the sovereignty of the seas with the Republican faction which then governed Holland. Sir William Temple clearly points out three things that Charles II had at heart, which he finally effected. First, for the Dutch fleets to his own supremacy in the narrow seas, by striking their flags to the smallest craft that bore the banner of England, which was done, and has been done ever since, thanks to the victories of his brother. The matter of the flag was carried to all the height His Majesty Charles II could wish, and the acknowledgment of its dominions in the narrow seas, allowed by treaty from the most powerful of our neighbors at sea, which had never yet been yielded by the weakest of them. The next, that his nephew William, who was at this period of his life, regarded by Charles and James affectionately as if he were a cherished son, should be recognized not only as a stockholder, but hereditary stockholder, with succession to children. Directly this was done, Charles made a separate peace with Holland, with scarcely an apology to France. Next it appears, by the same authority, that King Charles II, poor as he was, remembered that England had never paid the portion stipulated with the Princess Royal, his aunt. He now honorably paid it, not to the States of Holland, but insisted that it should be paid into the hands of her orphan son, his nephew, William of Orange, and this was done. Let those who doubt it turn to the testimony of the man who effected it, Sir William Temple. After Charles had seen his bereaved and impoverished nephew firmly established as a sovereign prince, with his mother's dowry in his pocket to render him independent, he recalled all his subjects fighting under the banners of France, and gave leave for the Dutch and their allies, the Spaniards, and their generalissimo, his nephew William, to enlist his subjects in their service against France. Great personal courage was certainly possessed by William of Orange, and personal courage, 
before the Moloch centuries gradually blended into the sweeter sway of mammon, was considered tantamount to all other virtues. In one of the bloody drawn battles, after the furious strife had commenced between Louis the Fourteenth and Spain in the Low Countries, the Prince of Orange received a musket shot in the arm. His loving Dutchman groaned and retreated, when their young general took off his hat with the wounded arm, and waved it about his head to show his arm was not broken, cheered them on to renew the charge. Another anecdote of William's conduct in the field is not quite so pleasant. In his last battle of Montcassel, his best Dutch regiment pertinaciously retreated. The prince rallied and led them to the charge, till they utterly fled, and carried him with them to the main body. The diminutive hero, however, fought both the French and his own Dutch in his unwilling transit. One great cowardly Dutchman he slashed in the face and exclaimed, Rascal, I will set a mark on thee, at least, that I may hang thee afterwards. This adventure leans from the perpendicular of the sublime somewhat to the ridiculous. It was an absurd cruelty, as well as an imprudent sally of venomous temper. There was no glory gained by slashing a man's face, who was too much of a poltroon to demolish him on such provocation. Among the British subjects who studied the art of war under William, whilst that prince was generalissimo for Spain, was the renowned Graham of Claverhouse, who afterwards made his crown of Great Britain totter. At the bloody battle of Senefe, Claverhouse saved the Prince of Orange from death, or from what the prince would have liked less, captivity to Louis the Fourteenth. He rescued him from the French by a desperate charge, and sacrificing his own chance of retreat, placed the little man on his own swift and strong war horse. Like his great nephew, Frederick II of Prussia, William of Orange sooner or later always manifested ungrateful hatred against those who saved his life. How William requited John Fenwick, who laid him under the same obligation the same day or soon afterwards, is matter of history. He, however, promised Claverhouse the command of the first regiment that should be vacated, but he broke his word and gave it to the son of the Earl of Portmore, subsequently one of his instruments in the revolution. Claverhouse was indignant, and meeting his supplanter at Loo, he caned him. The Prince of Orange told Claverhouse that he had forfeited his right hand for striking anyone within the verge of his palace. Claverhouse, in reply, undauntedly reproached him with his breach of promise. I gave you what is of more value to you than a regiment, said the prince dryly, being your good right hand. Your highness must likewise give me leave to serve elsewhere, returned Claverhouse. As he was departing, the Prince of Orange sent him a purse of two hundred guineas to purchase the good steed which had saved his life. Claverhouse ordered the horse to be led to the prince's stables and tossed the contents of the purse among the Dutch grooms. Most persons suppose that William of Orange had to buy the ambitious attack of Louis XIV in 1674, single-handed. A mistake. He was the general of all Europe combined against France, with the exception of Great Britain, who sat looking on and very much in the right. Seeing the Roman Catholic power of France contending with the ultra-papist states of Spain and Austria, the last championized, forsooth, by the young Orange Protestant, whose repeated defeats, however, had placed Flanders, the usual European battleground, utterly at the mercy of Louis the Fourteenth, 
for William of Orange, with more bravery than was needful, was not quite so great a general as he thought himself. His situation now became most interesting, for his own country was forthwith occupied by the victorious armies of France, and every one but himself gave him up for lost. Here his energetic firmness raises him at once to the rank of the hero, which he was, although he has received a greater share of hero worship than we think his due. He was not an injured hero. He had provoked the storm, and he was fighting the battles of the most culpable of papist states. We have no space to enter into the detail of the heroic struggle maintained by the young stadtholder and his faithful Dutchman, how they laid their country under water and successfully kept the powerful invader at bay. Once the contest seemed utterly hopeless, William was advised to compromise the matter and yield up Holland as the conquest of Louis the Fourteenth. No, replied he, I mean to die in the last ditch. A speech alone sufficient to render his memory immortal. In the midst of the arduous war with France, just after the Battle of Santa Fe, William of Orange was seized with the same fatal malady which had destroyed both his father and his mother in the prime of their lives. The eruption refused to throw out, and he remained half dead. His physicians declared that if some young healthy person who had not had the disease would enter the bed and hold the prince in his arms for some time, the animal warmth might cause the pustules to appear, and the hope of his country be thus saved. This announcement produced the greatest consternation among the attendants of the prince. Even those who had had the disease were terrified at encountering the infection in its most virulent state, for the physicians acknowledged that the experiment might be fatal. One of the pages of the Prince of Orange, a young noble of the line of Bentick, who was eminently handsome, resolved to venture his safety for the life of his master, and volunteered to be the subject of the experiment, which, when tried, was completely successful. Bentick imbibed the disease and narrowly escaped with life. For many years, he was William's favorite and prime minister. Soon after William's recovery from this dangerous disease, his royal uncles, supposing the boyish thirst of combat in their nephew might possibly be assuaged by witnessing or perpetrating the slaughter of a hundred thousand men, the victims of the contest between France and Spain in four years, gave him a hint that if he would pacify Europe, he should be rewarded by the hand of his cousin, the Princess Mary. The prospect of his uncle James becoming the father of a numerous family of sons prompted a rude rejection in the reply. He was not in a condition to think of a wife. The Duke of York was deeply hurt and angry that any mention had been made of the pride and darling of his heart, his beautiful Mary, then in her fifteenth year. Though, continues Temple, it was done only by my lord Osory, and whether with any order from the king and duke, he best knew. Lord Osory, the brave son of Ormond, the renowned ducal cavalier, commanded the mercenary English troops before named. He was as little pleased as the insulted father at the slight cast on young Mary. The Dutch prince experienced a change in the warmth of the letters which the father of the Princess Mary had addressed to him, since the rude answer he had given to a very kind intent. It had, perhaps, been signified to him by Charles II, when he proposed a visit to England, that he had better stay till invited. These intimations made the early wise politician understand that the insult he had offered, in an effervescence of brutal temper, to the fair young princess, 
whose rank was so much above his own, was not likely to be soon forgotten by her fond father or her uncle. With infinite sagacity, he changed his tactics, knowing that the king of Great Britain, whatsoever party revilings may say to the contrary, though pacific, really maintained the attitude of Henry the Eighth when Charles V and Francis I were contending together. Young William of Orange did not need to be told that if his uncles threw their swords into the scale against his Spanish and Austrian masters, all the contents of all the dikes of Holland would not then fence him against his mortal enemy Louis, whom, it will be remembered, he had likewise contrived to insult regarding the disposal of his charming self in wedlock. With the wise intention of backing dexterously out of a pretty considerable scrape, the young hero of Nassau made an assignation with his devoted friend, Sir William Temple, to hold some discourse touching love and marriage in the gardens of his hound's Larkdyke palace one morning in the pleasant month of January. He appointed the hour, says Sir William Temple, and we met accordingly. The prince told me, that I could easily believe, being the only son that was left of his family, he was often pressed by his friends to think of marrying, and had had many persons proposed to him, as their several humors led them, that, for his part, he knew it was a thing to be done at some time or other. After proceeding, in this inimitable style, through a long speech, setting forth, the offers made to him by ladies of France and Germany, he intimated that England was the only country to which he was likely to return a favorable answer, and added, Before I make any paces that way, I am resolved to have your opinion upon two points, but yet I will not ask it, unless you promise to answer me as a friend, and not as King Charles's ambassador. He knew very well that all he was pleased to say regarding his paces, as he elegantly termed his matrimonial proposals, would be duly transmitted to his uncle, both as friend and ambassador, and that the points on which he called a consultation would be quoted as sufficient apology for his previous brutality. He wished, he said, to know somewhat of the person and disposition of the young lady Mary, for though it would not pass in the world, for example, that the world would not give him credit for such delicacy. For a prince to seem concerned in those particulars, yet for himself, he would tell me without any sort of affection that he was so, and to such a degree, that no circumstances of fortune and interest would engage him without those of person, especially those of humor and disposition, meaning temper and principles. As for himself, he might perhaps not be very easy for a wife to live with. He was sure he should not to such wives, as were generally in the courts of this age, that if he should meet with one to give him trouble at home, "'twas what he shouldn't be able to bear, "'who was like to have enough abroad in the course of his life. "'Besides, after the manner in which he was resolved to live with a wife, "'which should be the very best he could, "'he would have one that he thought likely to live well with him, "'which he thought chiefly depended on her disposition and education, "'and that if I, that is Sir William Temple, "'knew anything particular in these points of the Lady Mary, "'he desired I would tell him freely.' Sir William Temple replied, that he was very glad to find that he was resolved to marry, and after some compliments assured him, of his own observation, he could say nothing of the temper and principles of the Lady Mary, but that he had heard both his wife and sister speak, with all advantage, 
of what they could discern in a princess so young, and more from what they had been told by her governess, Lady Villiers, for whom they had a particular friendship, and who, he was sure, took all the care that could be in that part of her education which fell to her share. Who would have believed that the first exploit of the young prince, then making such proper and sensible inquiries regarding the temper and principles of his wedded partner, with such fine sentiments of wedded felicity on a throne, should be, to corrupt the daughter of this governess, the constant companion of his wife, and subject her to the insult of such a companionship to the last hour of her life? Sir William Temple, who, good man, believed most guilelessly all that the hero of Nassau chose to instill, thus proceeds. After two hours' discourse on this subject, the Prince of Orange concluded that he would enter on this pursuit, that is, proposed forthwith for his cousin Mary. He meant to write both to the king and the Duke of York, to beg their favor in it, and their leave that he might go over into England at the end of the campaign. He requested that my wife, Lady Temple, who was returning upon my private affairs in my own country, should carry and deliver both his letters to his royal uncles, and during her stay there, should endeavor to inform herself, the most particularly that she could, of all that concerned the person, humor, and dispositions of the young princess. Within two or three days of this discourse, the young Prince of Orange brought his letters to the Lady Temple, and she went directly to England with them. She left me, said Sir William Temple, preparing for the Treaty of Nimeguen, where, by the way, the Dutch and French were equally desirous of peace, although William of Orange contrived to eke out the war in behalf of his Spanish master for full three years. The Prince of Orange was better able to negotiate for a wife, having lost his grandmother in 1675, who had possession of the palace in the wood and other immunities of dowagerhood at The Hague. This princess was remarkable for a generous economy. She never had more than 12,000 crowns per annum revenue, yet she was entirely served in gold plate. Sir William Temple enumerates her water bottles of gold, the key of her closet of gold, and all her gold cisterns. Everything this old grand dowager touched was of that adorable and adored metal. It was as well, perhaps, for young Mary, that her husband's grandmother had departed before her arrival. It may be doubted whether the young bride inherited all the gold movables. William had a bad habit of shooting away all the precious metals he could appropriate in battles and sieges. The plenishing at Whitehall, although only of silver, were coined up and departed on the same bad errand in the last years of his life. End of section 17